Improve your network automation from one-off scripts only you can use to safe, robust automations you can share with your entire IT organization with Itential. Find out more at www.itential.com slash packetpushers. That's www.itential.com slash packetpushers. Welcome to Packet Pushers Heavy Networking. This is a future of networking episode where we find a person who has been deep in the network technology market or arena, and they're generally recognized for being outstanding in that field. Today's guest is Brad Casemore, who managed to survive multiple decades as an analyst, mostly for IDC, which has now been absorbed by another company. And he's pretty widely known for making predictions, producing analysis reports, and so on and so forth. Now, I, I also just want to mark a milestone here because I think Brad might also be the first retired person we've actually had on Packet Pushers uh, since he's recently abandoned the industry to its own devices, but we're lucky to have him here for today for a type of exit interview on the state of network infrastructure. Welcome, Brad Casemore. Welcome to Packet Pushers. Thank you very much, Greg. And yes, you're right. I'm into my epilogue years, but I hope to still uh, have something to say. <laughs> I haven't quite uh, gone completely dotty, so I'll, I'll try to be... Uh... Perceptive to your audience. This yeah. is this is a, an interesting day because we've actually tried to get you on the show. You've wanted to come on the show, but in your professional role as an analyst for a brand, you were had very restricted to the point of view that it just didn't make the shows. So it is a, a good day that we can now finally talk. I think and and get. Yeah, some I think people. I think I think it was on once before, but you're right. We we, we tried to. We tried to schedule an encore, and and yeah. it didn't work out for a variety of reasons. I think there were there was something. Well, a lot of changes occurred at IDC, right? There was mm -hmm. um, there was IDC for a while was owned by a company called China Nationwide, and then of course you know there's the um, now it's part of the Blackstone Empire, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. But so it's there there were a lot of changes that were occurring at IDC over the last oh I'd say seven eight years, yeah. So, so Brad, if there's any bridges you'd like to burn with the analyst or technical community, this is your opportunity. Yeah, well, no, I, no real bridges to burn, but uh, I'm sure we'll get into some uh, interesting discussions today. <laughs> <laughs> but for the first time, you were actually free of the hobbles of being, you know, of what you had to do as your role as an analyst, where you had to be reasonably balanced and not particularly upsetting anybody. And we probably won't do that today because that's not who we are. But we do have a bunch of topics that we've sort of prepared, some things on the current state of the industry. And it, of course, over the decades of your, you know, work in the analyst industry and being in touch with vendors, your perspectives, I think, are going to be very relevant. And of course, the one that's on the top of everybody's tongue, especially CEOs in every single financial report I read, is AI. So do you think AI is real and how much of it is hype or how much of it is going in a direction that the enterprise will actually use? Well, it's a it's a great question. I think there's there are many dimensions to it, right? And if we can, we'll save the networking discussion because that's twofold, right? One is, um, one is how much will AI um, lead to any sort of renewed growth or added growth in the networking market in terms of um, the underlying network infrastructure that will support AI apps? And then two is, to what extent does AI actually become a means through which networking becomes more effective, efficient, productive, et cetera. Mm. Uh, but overall, AI, if we step back, uh, clearly organizations, you know, you probably saw the blog post from Mark Mark Andreessen at Andreessen Horowitz, and you, you've seen uh, the, the other coverage. It's getting a tremendous push, right? I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. the VCs see it as, well, here's a whole new 
group of companies that we can seed and AI across many sort of industries, applications, horizontals, verticals. You know, this is this is this is a new opportunity for us at scale. Now, when this happens, and and I think this is the this is the cautious part. There's always a danger of a bubble forming because everybody sees this opportunity. Um, you have the legitimate entrepreneurs and and engineers and you know serious people who actually want to uh, build products and services that um, that are efficacious and useful. But you also have a lot of people who are going to jump into this because there's a lot of froth in the ocean, right? So like crypto. Yeah, absolutely. There's a chance to yeah. We've got a lot of chances, you know. Um in technology, in VC, you know, around the venture capital industry. And they, if you can talk fast and talk a good story, you can get a Tupperware startup going really easily. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. And and no, you're absolutely right. I think we already saw, even before all this, all the re- recent wave of talk about generative AI, we already saw a lot of AI washing going on in in a number of different areas of the technology industry. And I think we'll see, unfortunately, quite a bit more of that. And it will be a buyer beware situation where I think, you know, customers and, and people like people like you, Greg, will have to sort out, you know, how much of this is real and how much of this is fiction. Mm. So my my reading of the AI industry at this stage is that what we're seeing at the moment is what I think of as big AI, the LLMs, yep. right? Where you have yep. to take, you know, petabytes of data collected from whatever source you can scrounge, steal, you know, whether private, public, or whatever, and form up an LLM, and um, that market is that that is potentially the most impactful market. Yeah. But it's and you can, can sell it via an AI uh, via an API. So we're seeing ChatGPT. It's now on a billion dollars run rate, I believe that that OpenAI company because it's selling an API. However, the website is losing in popularity because it's not accurate and it's not reliable and it's not trustworthy. What I do see emerging is what I think of as small AI. That is a networking company like Juniper Mist, right? Focuses on using artificial intelligence and machine learning, deep learning and statistical analysis to just take a narrower data set to produce a different, you know, a very high reliable, high confidence level results. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that what's happening is the big AI is where all the hype is and where the investor money is going, but where it's more likely to be used is you use an LLM on your help desk to ask the person who's submitting a ticket like natural questions about, are you having problems connecting to the internet? Have you turned it off and on? Have you checked the Wi-Fi? Are you in home? Are you out at a coffee shop? Do you know what I mean? Like I've mm-hmm. seen people like ServiceNow attach an LLM, but they're not using an LLM to do the work. They're using an LLM just to improve the quality of ticket submission. So I think small AI is probably where we're headed. Yeah, and, and you're right. There's there's an opportunity in any of those engagements to ingest more data. That of course there there, there could be a kind of virtuous cycle created in those use cases that you just talked about. So there is some practical use that that can be made from that, right? And that's that's an aspect where the technology actually can be applied in a real use case. I, I would agree. Yeah. Have you ever noticed people? One of the things that I was surprised to see is that corporations and companies across the world are more than happy to give their data from their networks to the vendors. So all of these SaaS services mean that their data is ingested. So yeah. flow records, you know, all the network management, all the network monitoring, all the ability tools, you know, their visibility, observability, manageability, they're sucking up all that data, which will be used to train AI models for sure, because that's mm-hmm. in the terms and conditions. Have you ever seen any companies balk at that? Or is that just sort of 
it doesn't matter. We're you know we're busy making money. Doesn't matter about privacy. Yeah, I have. I mean, I, in in certain cases, you're right. Most opt in and and they opt in of their own accord and they don't really raise an objection to it. Um, and and as you know, we can we can say, well, it's kind of surprising, or we can say, no, it isn't, because you know some of them are looking at it. Uh, through a big picture lens and, you know, enlightened self-interest, well, it's going to make the system better and I'll benefit from it in that way. But I but I have seen, and, and this probably won't surprise you, certain government organizations, certain uh, organizations that are based in uh, in the in the EU and in Germany and some other places uh, raise objections to that and say, look, I'd like to opt out. Um, but it it's not a, a widespread phenomenon. And I think in this age where people have, People and organizations have, have have sort of I don't want to say accepted, but let's say acquiesced to you know the mm. the loss of a certain degree of privacy. I I, I think it's it's sort of a rearguard action at at most now. Um, mm. We we've kind of moved into there, there was a lot of concern. I don't want to say back in the day because it wasn't that long ago about issues of privacy and confidentiality, but you know um, the User agreements and, as you said, various practices in the industry have kind of mitigated that or yeah. eaten yeah. away at it. And and now most organizations do do accept it. But there's another thing, right? You're it's twofold. You're you're trusting that organization with the data, and you're and you're and you're saying, okay, I'm you know they're they're going to suck up a lot of data, and some of it, um, if not sensitive, immediately sensitive, is going to be identifiable with my organization, right? And could 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 reveal something about how I use my network and how I use my data. But two, you're also trusting them from a security standpoint to keep that data secure and confidential. So I do mm-hmm. think there's a great onus now on the vendors. I mean, you know, there are, we, we, we've read about breaches and hacks, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I, I'm sure you'll see uh, breaches and hacks to some of these, um, these, these data lakes that they're collecting through these agreements. And, and those could be significant events when they do occur. Although I guess as a, you know, an enterprise feeling like, oh, some metadata from my network traffic got breached is less of an issue than customer records and, you know, medical images or so on that, that, that if that breach happens, it may not have the same pushback I would get if it was more sensitive data. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I do think that's true. Although I, I guess it depends. It it always depends on the particulars, right? So, sure. <laughs> um, you know, you could you could find that uh, a breach of that sort occurs, and then of course uh, there's kind of a correlation that occurs down the line, and 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 you get hit by something else. So, um, there 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 may be an aggregate effect, but uh, I I do think organizations are having um, you know the or, the vendors who are providing these services will have. Um, uh, it's a fiduciary, it's almost like a fiduciary trust that's being developed, right? It's mm-hmm. it's you're going to use this data responsibly first and foremost, and and you know I'm going to get some value back from because if you're just you know using all my data and I'm seeing a, um, a yeah, in- I've got I've got an intelligent system or a quasi intelligent system that's telling me that the transceivers here are dropping signal and I need yep. to be doing something about them which is something I could have done myself, but with so much work, it was beyond me because there's not enough headcount, you know, and so on and so forth. Right, that's exactly. Most enterprises weren't doing anything with this data anyway. So yes, a third party has it and they're creating value for themselves from it, but presumably they are also delivering some of that value back to me in terms of 
uh, smarter troubleshooting, faster problem response uh, alerts on po- potential issues before they become a bigger problem. And that'll be it. How how much can you deliver um, proactive defenses, right? Something that's anticipatory that that I see as conferring real value. If if the value is, and then it depends on okay, what premium I am I paying for the service versus the value that I receive, right? And then there will right. be a kind of quantitative exercise the enterprise takes part in. Uh, you know, I'm sure the vendors want to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. That's why they're in business at the end of the day. But you know, the customer always has to has to see um, value from the service. Now, what I think will happen in as these services continue to evolve is you you know you may see a kind of uh, a premium increase over time, right? So, in other words, you know, we've we've got to get them on board. We've got to get a dependency because it does become another form potentially of of lock-in, right? Mm. Over over time. So, you know, the way a lot of these lock-ins have worked is early on, um, you know, you're not uh you're not doing any anything that could be perceived as gouging, but over time you may decide to take a little bit more of the cake, right? So yeah. um I think I think that's the way it'll work. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out because um at one stage we were concerned about you know, the company who had the most data would be able to produce the best AI and would be able to outcompete. So, but I think one of the things that's becoming clear is the company with the most data has probably just got the most overheads because (laughs) more data doesn't necessarily make a better AI um, when the data is basically the same thing over and over. Yep. Uh, Like all networks are the same. All problems are fundamentally the same. There's only a limited number of, you know, fundamental logic in conclusions that you can draw. That's why humans can do it by and large. And I do think that, you know, if you're someone who's just collecting so much data to run an AI, you've just got a lot of overhead. Like AWS and Azure aren't cheap and Google aren't cheap. And if you're holding onto petabytes of data in their systems, you're actually doing your, you know, the vendor's going to be struggling to make a profit. Yeah, no, it's a, and this is what's always my objection. Do you remember that saying, Greg, a few years ago? That data is the new oil. I thought that was that was a silly saying because it's not the new oil. Oil has inherent value. All of it has inherent value. But a lot of data, to your point, does not have value, right? It's the it's basically stuff you already know. It's a common state. It's a known state, and you're just getting more and more of it, right, occurring over time. But now it costs to keep it. Once upon a time, right. You know, it, a little bit of data. You know, okay, some storage arrays or whatever. You know, put it on a tape. You know, but once you get beyond a petabyte of data, you can't actually restore it from tape. It's, exactly. It's just, and it, it takes and too long, you know. It's it's those exceptional events that are really important, right? It's not this, this as as uh, you say, this mountain of data that's undifferentiated. But you, but, but, but to your point, unless you're, I, I think that's another way you're, I mean, we, I'm not talking about anything new here, Greg. I'm sure that you know this, the sort of exception-based data, um, data collection, will probably be, and that's the way a lot of the hyperscalers already do it in their data centers. That's probably the way we'll go, but everybody has to, has to, I guess, um, learn at their own rate and figure out how they want to make a business of this. But, but you're absolutely right. It makes no sense to keep stuff that has no value, yeah, right? Cause or, it's going to cost. But can you it. even identify what's no value? I mean, one of the things I'm in a, I participate in a discord. There's a number of AI startups and the problem they've got now is that the cost of storing the data to train their AI models is killing them. Because there's just so much money in being spent on storage off, you know, in an off-prem cloud, yeah. that they just have this infinite requirement for cash just to stay where they are. 
Yeah, and I'm sure the CFOs are asking those questions too, right? They're saying, what's wrong? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so companies like Snowflake and DBT, which are data analytics companies, uh, you know, they've been growing gangbusters and people have been thumping data into and, you know, creating, you know, rules and stuff to do data analytics on those platforms. But they're all based on off-prem clouds and the the analysts are starting to turn against them because they're looking at the underlying costs and they're saying like the costs of retaining the data in the cloud exceeds the value that's being delivered to the customers. And that's oh. something that, which is interesting because that is not a cloud story not, that not we a hear. Cloud story, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, that the actual underlying, like the amount of money that AWS, Azure, and Google suck out of the system actually makes certain businesses unprofitable. And now because they've never done on-prem and they've never capitalized and then run it efficiently, they're often, uh, the software that's on these platforms is often inefficient. It hasn't been optimized. There's been very little discipline and control on sprawl. Um, you know, And now you're seeing 20% of headcount is suddenly cost management instead of product value, like finding new features and stuff. And so there's a whole cycle of off-prem cloud that's becoming destructive that, yeah, and you that may applies. See, and it makes sense to apply something that's already been used in the in the CDN world where, you know, you have um, you have local caching of, let's say, downloads, like thinking about Netflix, right? Your people in your area are watching the same movie, so they have it cached there. You know, it's a little different, obviously, in the context that we're discussing, but there, there, I'm sure there'll be technologies that, that apply, um, that allow or enable some sort of smart data collection where, you know, you're, right. you're, you're basically getting rid of the redundant data because you already have it and you're, and you're only collecting data. Smart data collection is more like data purging. Like the yeah. vendors have to get smart about what do we purge because there's nothing in it. And of course that's. That's like throwing out your box of cables under the, you know, the one that everybody, every network engineer's got <laughs> under their desk. You know the one? <laughs> yes. A quick sponsor break courtesy of Itential. Itential is the network automation platform you get to build robust self-service automation that is safe for your entire IT organization. Now, if you've been writing your own automation, I'm guessing you've run into this problem. You have a directory. It's got a bunch of Python scripts or Ansible playbooks in it. And, and yeah, they're way better than CLI copy-paste. But who besides you can safely use those scripts or run those playbooks? Hmm, it's all a bit fragile. And that makes you irreplaceable. And that's not good. You want to be able to go on vacation or be sick or have dinner without getting a call. Which means you need a network automation system that is not fragile, that anyone in your organization can use, and that leverages the automation work you've already done. And Itential gives you all of this. With Itential, you'll be able to run your scripts safely as a workflow that integrates with your change management, your IPAM, monitoring, your ticketing system, and anything else that you need. True network automation. Not something that just saves you some CLI time, but something that touches everything that needs updating and testing when you make a network change. And Itential is low code. You don't have to be a software developer to use it. Whether you're just getting started with network automation or you're deep down the rabbit hole with GitOps and pipelines, Itential can help. Automate from ticket creation to ticket closure with Itential. Find out more at www.itential.com slash packetpushers. That's www.itential.com slash packetpushers. 
So Brad, I'm curious, you, we mentioned AI washing earlier. Do you have any advice or perspective on how enterprises can sort of parse the messages they're getting from vendors or prospective vendors when they come to them and say, we've got this new AI capability. Do you want to add it to your subscription license? Well, I think it's always, always important. I mean, these are, these are things that we've, we've, we've always done in the industry where, you know, you asked, uh, well, who's using it today? Um, do you have evidence that people are already getting value from this service? Why, um, you know, exactly where has it been used and what sort of value has been derived, right? This is where you you look at business value studies based on the purchase of a technology and the use of a service. If you're going to be first, you want to make sure that you are given, and, and I, you know, I probably um, would advise most organizations not to be first, but some who really <laughs> want to gamble with this will say, you know, okay, you know, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to basically roll the dice here but I expect special special dispensation and I think you can drive for that if they don't have any other hmm. testimonials from customers you can probably drive for um for for let's say a uh, uh a propitious agreement right in terms mm -hmm. of in terms of cutting your terms so right. so you you've hit on a topic that's one of my favorite fun ones are customers getting smarter about buying I've seen a lot of people just buying stuff and, and not pushing back on the vendors. They just sort of take whatever the vendor tells them. And it just, they're not smart about demanding their share from the, or demanding service from the vendors or demanding value and saying, no, this product just doesn't give me value at that price. They just roll over and take whatever the vendor shoves at them. Or are you seeing something different from your perspective being inside the analyst community? There's, a, there's only, I would say there's a minority of customers, right? And, and I, you know, my argument would be they're the, they're the ones who are really clever about this, who are pushing back and making sure that um, they are they are mitigating the risk of their investment in the technology. But you're right; a lot of others get overwhelmed by the hype and the fear of miss yes, the fear of missing out that we're seeing out there. Right? I, I think so. I I don't want to say social media is infected the way people think about everything, but 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 I do think there's there is a new mindset out there in the industry, Greg, that that really um, aligns with with what you've seen where folks are saying well this is the new thing i've got to jump on it right it, it's mm. the part of the it's the part of the tech industry that's become a bit like the fashion industry <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's and it's 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 not good for the organization because you can really get caught out as a as a cio or or network buyer or infrastructure buyer if all in on the cloud yeah we're yeah. going all in on the cloud that was the dumbest <laughs> thing ever right but <laughs> There's a lot of CIOs who did that, right? You know, we're going yeah. all in on AI. Yeah. All in on AI, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we, you also mentioned earlier, Brad, that you had some thoughts about uh, AI specifically around uh, network networking, network automation, network operations. Do you see potential transformative effects there, or again, maybe just? A slight moving. I'm thinking of. I went to a. We should pressure for that. I went to a Juniper event. It was Juniper sponsored. Uh, it was at a university in Texas, and they took us around on a tour. And the the university said we've basically got one full time person essentially running our wireless network. Uh, this is for tens of thousands of students, a huge campus, because of the automation enabled by Mist AI. Now, of course, it's it's at a vendor event, so everything that the customer says is going to be nice and shiny. But do you see in the narrower use case uh, of uh, Craig's definition of a small-scale AI as opposed to LLMs that there could be an impact in the networking field? Yeah, that's a great, uh, 
what Juniper has done, you know, after the missed acquisition with the missed portfolio is a good example, I think, of of um of effective and practical AI. And you know, I'm not uh, I'm not just going to obviously pump Juniper's tires, but it is a good example. And and I do see customers have done that. And as you guys know, right, um most organizations out there, most enterprises are are going to run their their networking teams lean, right? So yeah. that technology allows you to do that, and and it's um it it really allows the the very small teams in this case one one person to 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 scale effectively. And organizations will always love that; they'll always be attracted to it. And not only that, but the technology, um, based on all the conversations that uh, that that I had when I was at IC, or at least most of the conversations, does its job very well, right? If it's implemented correctly and and, and used correctly. This AI phenomenon it, as a, you know, used uh, to enhance network management and, and, and network overall network performance, I think is, is the evolution. And we've seen it over years. We always talk about things as if they're brand new, right? And they've popped out of nowhere, right? And 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 we and we talk about them very much in a in a tech centric way because it's the tech industry. But really, look at it as as the evolution of of networks becoming, you know, more software driven and more intelligent over time. And I think the biggest value, if you look at it in that in that construct, is not only the day. You know, first of all, you do the day zero and day one, and and AI can contribute to that in terms of you know smarter uh, verified and validated configurations and that sort of I thing i don't but, think i don't i disagree i don't think yeah. ai matters at all for day 0 and day 1 i think what you can what you buy and what you deploy ai does nothing. I, nothing I think it can in a data center context data center and cloud i think i think there's there's some value there but i would, in campus mm. i would agree now if now if you're looking at day 2 i think it's got it's got some it's got some great applications irrespective yeah. of, of which place in the network yeah yeah operationally so ai my view is that AI is an operational amplifier. Yeah, that's so, absolutely where it's going to have the greatest value in the, in the day two. It's going to detect faults that a normal person yep. couldn't. It's going to analyze all the flows and then be able to say, you know, here's an anomaly happening in the flows across multiple sites and look at it. It's going to be used in the security industry, of course, for SSE and SD-WAN, right? You're going yep. to be able to find new threats, new malware, new vectors, I think that's got a long way to go because that's very hard to train, like training things to recognize malware when there are humans creating the malware, right? That's unexpected from the data. Um, that's going to be a much tougher ask. It's going to take a lot longer than most people think. But in terms of, you know, oh, this optical interface is losing signal and you've probably got two days to replace it before it does completely. I think AR is a very good use case for that. And I also think it's good for help desks. Yep. Your help desk operators can ask a question of an AI and it can help them down a pathway, down a playbook, down a run and say like, oh, we've seen this, you know, that collective knowledge that a help desk normally has like, oh, if you say like common Wi-Fi problems in this company, especially if you're a managed service provider like a telco, right? And yeah. you're managing SD-WANs for 500 customers. You can start to suddenly say, if I have an LLM and I can query the knowledge base, which says like a very common problem with this brand of SD-WAN losing its DNS is this, you know? Exactly. And and you're right. Those telcos usually have a certain number of SD-WAN infrastructure vendors uh, with, with, with whom they partner and they provide services for their customers. And, and you're right. They're going to see a lot of commonalities in the issues that arise with each vendor's infrastructure. So I think it's a great playbook uh, use mm -hmm. case there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Although I guess I worry, you, you mentioned uh, organizations like to run their networking teams lean. Uh, and if you combine that with AI washing, you get into a potential problem with executives thinking, oh, we're getting AI so we can cut headcount, but mm. it's not actually a great product. And then <laughs> you run into problems. The other problem you have with a small team is you get dumber as a buyer. <laughs> so, right. The less and less people you have, the less and less skills you have, the more you lean into an automated system, the dumber you are as a customer. You don't know what you're buying. It's like watching my daughter buy a car. It's red. It's great. <laughs> you know, what else do you want to know, right? It's a nice color red and it doesn't smell, right? And you're going like, oh. Right. And that's what I, I think there's a certain amount of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. And and this is, this is obviously, I, and I've been preaching this for a while, is that the folks, as you get more, I don't want to say top heavy, but you know what I mean, right? You've got fewer folks who are actually in touch with the technology at the bottom of the pyramid over time, right? It's going to, mm-hmm. you're kind of almost inverting the pyramid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you have to make sure that um, if you're making these decisions and you're higher up in that hierarchy, you, you need to make sure that you inform yourself about this stuff, at least yeah. to the degree that, that you know what you're buying. And and I think Greg, that's a great but The thing is that if you've got an AI-enabled operational system, there's no need to have a top-notch engineer on staff. Yep. Right? And so now you're inexperienced, just responding. You, you know, you tend to go down to the cheaper staff who've got less training and less experience who don't have the motivation to self-learn and to progress, and that becomes a spiral, which puts the vendors in the driving seat. Mm. You might have these, these call them network mercenaries on call. Ha <laughs> 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 ha! It's Captain Network Obvious. Yeah. <laughs> the consultant is here. Ha <laughs> <laughs> yeah. ha! Sure uh, I'm sure the per hour charges will be... <laughs> the thing is, that, that was... So you're alluding potentially to a return of reseller economics where the, the customers turn to resellers to give them advice, but the resellers are all captive to the vendors as well now. So they're all trapped inside of um, reseller agreements and volume agreements and training requirements and yada, yada, yada. And the resellers, I, I don't generally perceive the resellers as a, as a source of independent advice. And even if they are, the vendors, any sort of deal of a substantial size, the vendors will make sure that the reseller gets sidelined and yeah. that they take control of the narrative. So, Especially now, right, when you've got more more happening with cloud and SD-WAN and all these other technologies, I think you're right. We've seen a diminution in the role they can play in a lot of these accounts. And and maybe what we're, we're pointing out is obviously a gap um, yeah. in the ecosystem today. And, I, you know, how long will it take to fill it? it, it Probably will take a little bit of time because of, as you say, all the commercial entanglements. We'll bring you out of retirement to be the (laughs) anti-AI. Well, I mean, one of the things that we've seen, uh, I know that Cisco about five or six years ago bought an AI company and what they were doing was using it as a sales tool and it would be out there on the internet collecting browsing data of people, of people at companies and watching LinkedIn to see who moved where and when and building up intelligent models of, of their buyers. And now that they've got data about what's actually happening in the networks, they actually have a full AI system actually watching what customers are doing. So if they suddenly see the customers buying less and less Cisco and equipment's being being removed from the network, because they see all this data, right? It's all the asset management gets uploaded to the cloud. And then suddenly they notice there's been a change in LinkedIn and that triggers off a salesperson to get out there on site that doesn't normally... They don't have the headcount for full-time sales operations anymore like they used to. 
And suddenly your Cisco salesperson turns up on site and goes, ah, what's been <laughs> happening? We've noticed something's, you know, something's not right. You seem to have lost the faith sort of thing, you know? Yeah. So maybe they start with a pretext that's on a different yeah. uh, level and then say, oh, oh, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, they probably would, but, you know, I'm just yeah. exaggerating for the point yeah. of the podcast. But, you know, yeah. I do um, suspect that AI can be used to enhance the vendor's sales pro- sales process and to be able to control the narrative that the customer sees. And the customer needs to get coming back to that customer as a smart buyer story. I do believe that that is the emerging, um, I'm not a big fan of industry analysts. No, no disrespect, Brad, because for the last <laughs> sorry, 20 years. I'm, because now I've retired, Greg. So that's that's right. Me. Yes. I think I've told you to your face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but I think that we're seeing you know, there's a return to that if the customers can't be smart buyers or they don't know what they're buying because the AI has been taking care of it for them. Where do they turn to for advice? As well, here's the, here's the very scary scenario and all that where, you know, if, if, you, if you read what Mark Andreessen said, one of the first things that he identified as an opportunity as a VC for investment is this AI life coach. Now, not just an AI life coach for, you know, kids who are in school, but he, you know, clearly that's an area he cited. But adults need their own life coach, an AI advisor, you know, in 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 his story, in his parlance, and then all sorts of professionals. These are regardless of what you do. And I imagine that IT professionals and you know network um, network buyers and and network professionals are part of that. They would have their own AI coach. Now you've hit on something that's absolutely right. Mm. If the if the already we see the channel partners right being kind of obviously working. Um, not just with the customer, but as an agency of the vendor, you have to think about who developed the AI and why they developed it, right? And they want to make money from that AI service. If they're providing coaching to the customer, right, the, the customer has to be very cognizant of exactly what the dynamics of that relationship are. Yeah. Right. I don't think most people understand the asymmetry of data here, just yeah. how much data the vendors have on yeah. the customer, what they're doing, what they're networking. They can see... Like, for example, Chrome has just come out with this cohorts, which so you can now go and with some smart work, you can actually now see what the what the IT team at a given company is browsing on the Internet. And if you see them browsing on your competitor sites, that's a signal that things aren't going your way. Right? Yep. And if and there are other signals, of course, you know, if equipment's disappearing out of the network and maintenance contracts aren't being renewed or you know, whatever it is. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's the, again, that comes back to, as you get into more of this data-driven AI business model, that I think there's even more of um, customers need to be cognizant of exactly how this works. They need to be cognizant of what data is being collected. And if they're buying an advisory service from the vendor, which increased, which of course increasingly will be the case, hmm. they they need to be aware that obviously the vendor has skin in the game too, right? And it's got to be a re- relationship that is commensurate and and beneficial for the customer, and not just a hey, by the way, you know, we have something else to sell you. So um, I think I think what you've brought up is very true, and um, I, I do think there th- this data asymmetry you spoke about uh, most people this is a new thing right so it's going to take time i think for customers to become um knowledgeable and savvy about exactly they're going to become better buyers Um, we've got to start i think at some point the idea of standards start to emerge but not standards as for standards sake it'll be standards as a way of interoperating so a way of migrating so 
we talk about social media, we need to be able to export our contacts out of Facebook so we can move to another network and start again with all of our friends, right? Yeah. Uh, and if you're going to use an AI tool, you know, if you're going to be using a, a, an SSE or a SASE from this vendor, you need to be able to port that over to another vendor. So one other thing I'm noticing is that uh, many of the vendors are now producing tools that let you take a competitor's configuration and generate it in there for their environment to assist with that migration to customers are so locking in, like once they make a choice, they're so embedded in a vendor that migrating away is so difficult that it's almost impossible to do. Yeah, that's there, there's, yeah, that's already on the way. Yeah. There is a significant, it might be an opportunity there for, you know, third-party vendors to create these abstractions that, that yeah, allow they all disappear, right? They do. They, they do. Yeah. They do. Right. So, um, what we do keep seeing is vendors come along with SD-WAN. So we're talking, I'm thinking of uh, Broadcom's uh, software team. They've got a, a software operations tool that sits above SD-WAN technology. So you could orchestrate multiple SD-WAN vendors. Yep. Right? But that all that goes right the way back to what we started with 20 years ago, where we had a manager of managers, you know, the open view. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cool. You know, the high, and, and it was horrible. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. By the way, by the way, Greg, of uh, you know when you mentioned the standards, I know this isn't what you were talking about, but um, true, true story, and it's kind of a funny. It ends up being a joke, but uh, I was talking about when the SD WAN market was just taking off. I was I was giving a little talk to an audience at one of the trade shows about SD WAN and the market, and showed our forecast. And one of the there was a gentleman in the audience who you know been through the industry a long time, and he was one of those you know old you know standards bodies. Um, you know, basically, uh, he is big on the standards body. He said, he stood up and raised his hand. And I said, yes. And he said, how can SD-WAN be a market? There's no standard. Clearly, you haven't worked in storage. <laughs> yes, <right. laughs> or programming languages or, yeah. you know, <laughs> or, or databases. Once it all gets to, once, it, once it's an overlay, there's yeah, no requirement. Once- yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I said. Well, it's software. <laughs> Software's eating the world. <laughs> you only need uh, standards for interoperability when you've got a physical, once you get into overlays. Yeah. We've even got a situation now where people are stitching together SD-WAN networks using IPSEC VPNs. So there's, yep. d- there is connectivity, but it's not intelligent connectivity. It's a really dumb. But most people, if they're running multiple SD-WAN, I'm just picking SD-WAN as an example here, they just run them uh, both at the same time. So yep. the, the underlay is the same, but they run both SD-WAN providers over the top and they just ma- migrate gradually. In fact, SD-WAN is one of the least locked-in technologies we've had in decades. Yeah, it's, that's in, in, and as you know, when it, when it first came out, there's great concern about um, how much of a lock-in effect would, would, would it would accrue, but you're absolutely right. A lot of customers are, are, have learned to use the technology intelligently, right, and for their own mm. purposes, yeah. Well, they didn't learn. They were forced to when they had to migrate away from one to the other. (laughs) Well, I saw a lot of that. I'm not going to say any names, but I'm sure sure you've seen this too, where they started out with one vendor who maybe had – had more chops or more expertise on the security side, but not so much mm. on the routing side, right? Mm. And uh-huh. they they found that you know the 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 service was not doing a good job on the on the networking side, but was okay for the security, right? If we think about the whole SASE thing, mm. and they basically decided, well, if this vendor, the other vendor, can be good enough on security, but give me much better 
much, much better routing and networking, I'll, I'll make the move. And they started to do exactly what you said. So I've seen that yeah. many times. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, and whereas in the old days, it was very difficult to interoperate multiple brands of uh, router at the, at the physical layer. Yep. Where you are actually using legacy point to point circuits, you know, getting compatibility between OSPF or BGP, even though it was standardized, was never, never a good thing. I, I want to come back to one thing you said before, like um, AI has got a lot of buzz and a lot of hype. And I have a pet theory that I want to run by you because you've got your perspective, which is if it wasn't for AI, we would be in a period of near total stagnation in the infrastructure markets. We've got yep. all the CPUs we need. We've got all the storage we need. Networking is pretty much done. Security is, you know, fine. It's it's going through some changes as we move to a much more software-centric security, but we've got software networking, software storage, software, you know, software servers. If it wasn't for AI, the market would be almost at a standstill. And that's part of the reason that people are jumping on it like a dog on a pork chop. Is it's the only thing that's new and fresh and's got a marketing story to tell. Yeah, I think there there is some of that. And I guess um you know, necessity is indeed the mother of invention, and there's no question that it has come it has come about at a propitious time for the industry because you're you're right. And then we had all the things. I mean, it's weird how we we try so hard to forget about COVID, but COVID tossed a huge spanner in the works with respect to things like 400 gig, right? In the in mm. in the cloud and other networks, it was. That was originally talking to the industry and the supply chain supposed to happen a lot sooner, and it's still playing out, right? And now with AI, it's going to it's going to get a second wind, and it's going to it's going to continue on, and you'll see faster speeds going forward. And now, I, I as you probably saw in the networking realm, now we have the ultra ultra Ethernet consortium, yeah. which is a lot ask like you the, about that. Yeah, a lot like the 25, it's almost the same, not exactly, but many of the same characters who are in the 25 gig consortium that you remember from many years ago, they're trying to give that a push. They clearly, it's interesting because even some customers who are buying InfiniBand now, but yeah, Microsoft's part of that, right? And Mm. I think you're going to see a lot of push there because they don't like buying from one vendor. They they never like buying from one vendor, yeah. Well, the the thing about the the, ch- the challenge that I see is that InfiniBand could be a winning technology for the enterprise for AI clusters because AI is not going to re- when you do AI, it's going to be for if enterprise buys AI hardware, it's going to be three or four racks inside their data center at most, right? Yeah. So if you could put InfiniBand in, that is actually all you need, and that replaces fiber channel. Um, completely because you can use InfiniBand for storage much better than you can Fiber Channel. It's faster and it's much more stable and reliable. Um, and it doesn't make sense to have InfiniBand and Fiber Channel because Fiber Channel is just too slow for yeah. AI processing. You need to move so much data, right? And ultra AI, like this idea of ultra Ethernet, this enhanced Ethernet thing, still doesn't fix the weaknesses of Ethernet. So you just can't guarantee anything with Ethernet. And what they're talking about doing at the Ultra Ethernet Consortium is putting a bunch of crufty hacks inside the network switches that'll get you somewhere for a while. Now, if you're AWS or Azure or Google, you need that. You're not going to install InfiniBand on 32,000 servers, right? But that's what they need because they think they need to operate at scale. But if you're building an AI cluster in an enterprise, you might have a couple of racks, of AI servers, like that's what NVIDIA sells today is they're selling up to 32, um, up to 32 racks using InfiniBand 
Um, that that rollout, I believe that's around about 200 million to buy mm -hmm. that scaled out AI cluster. It could be a lot more. I wouldn't want to be quoted on that, well, but you know, that's, you just don't need that much hardware to do AI processing. And but are you going to hire uh, a purpose, uh, an engineer who knows InfiniBand just to run those couple of racks? And don't need to. It's where like are you going to find somebody who knows InfiniBand? But you don't, you don't do that now. So in hyperconverged, when you buy a hyperconverged stack from HP GreenLake, do you care what switches are in there? I mean, if I'm the application team, probably not, but the network engineer might want some say. Because when it breaks or there's a problem, the network engineer is going to be the one called in to fix it. Yeah, well, the thing is that it doesn't, because it's just dedicated to that one task, it's just configured for that. The challenge, many of the operational challenges we have strikes me that because we have so many diverse applications and so many diverse requirements and things are constantly changing. But if you just take a rack, you know, you over here is your little AI cluster and it's configured and left alone, it doesn't, no, it doesn't have the same problems, I don't believe. There's no question, as you said earlier, obviously the large cloud providers, for the reasons that yeah. you, you cited, definitely want to um, overcome the perceived and real deficiencies of Ethernet for these AI environments, right? And you can see- and so do the vendors. You, exactly. The vendors and, are desperate to find a new way to make Ethernet, you know, to sell more. Okay. You know, like Broadcom's got to 800 gig in the ASICs, right? The Jerichos, the Tomahawks, yep. and the Tridents. And they're going to go to 1.6 terabits. And that's already, in the, we already know that's coming. What comes after that, Brad? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. If you've, you know, well, now I've got to go out and add, you know, I've got to find some doobery like they, for the last thing, they're still banging on about buffers in their switches as being vitally important. And for some nominal 0.1% of the of the switches in the world, that matters. But for everybody else, it's just a pointless marketing. It's like talking about POE back in 2001. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things, of course, that if you don't need it, you're, you you may end up still paying for it, right? So, uh, absolutely. And it, you know, the interesting thing there is obviously Rocky. Um, you know, Rocky, of course, came or, or a lot of Rocky, of course, came from Mellanox, which is now part of Nvidia, um, as they beefed up their Ethernet portfolio to um, and saw a lot of the market shifting over to Ethernet. In the, for instance, the cloud that we're talking about now, but. You know, to your point, and maybe this is this is another. Um, we'll call it a an uh, analogous situation. There are a lot of, I guess you could call them enterprises. There's specific types of enterprises that are already using InfiniBand in HPC environments, and yeah. as it so happens, HPC with its batch in real time looks a lot like. Um, HPC, right? In terms of, uh, uh, oh, you, know, yeah, yeah. you know, so, so if those organizations now you can say, well, wait a minute, those are science, those are scientific organizations. They're doing drug design. They're doing, you know, mm -hmm. weather modeling, they're doing weapons development, they're doing a range of things that are relatively niche, right? That's why HPC is a niche market. But, but the HPC, you buy custom service specifically yep. designed yep. Yep. to run, you know, you buy specific storage systems that's designed like, um, there are storage systems that are optimized for serial data transfer. That is, yep. unlike enterprise, there's no caching because caching would make no sense. If you're loading a 500 terabyte data file line by line to do a data analysis, there's no point in caching it. You're just slowing it down. Yeah. Right? yeah. You, yep. So there's no read ahead. There's no, none of that works in those environments. And the thing about HPC is 
they normally sit in dedicated racks. They get installed, everything gets wired down, and it never gets touched for five years. That's it. Yeah. It's done, right? And this is the gap, whereas the more conventional approach to even in hyper-converged is you're constantly adding memory, you're constantly changing the servers, you're upgrading different pieces of the element to scale out the capacity or to rotate out the old, and that's what creates the faults. But my sense is is that if the AI is much more looks like a, a microcomputer of the mid-1990s, you buy it, it runs until it's dead, and then you th- replace it with another one. You don't go in and you're not going to go into a server and replace the H100 GPU, NVIDIA H100 GPUs with the H200. You're going to buy a whole new rack. Of it. So, you're, so you're talking about the rise of AI, MAI, MAI Basic 4s and Prime Computer and all those other yeah. folks. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I mean, that's the way, I, well, and that's the Be way quite, NVIDIA yeah, is pitching yeah, it, right? Yeah, you can yeah. go to NVIDIA and buy it like a microcomputer. Here's our fixed form, or more like a HCI hyperconverged, right? Here it is. It's using InfiniBand. You get these servers. They're all connected. Internally, they're connected over NVLink. Externally, they're connected over an InfiniBand network using Mellanox. They use the Mellanox Bluefield DPUs to do data acceleration. Yeah. Um, all the storage is directly connected, blah, 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 right? And, and that's how you buy it. It looks like a looks more like a microcomputer than a HCI stack, which can be upgraded or modified, right? I, I know yeah. even when you talk with the, with the Mellanox folks, they, they will say, look, you know, we're never going to overwhelm in, in terms of overall revenue and volumes. We're never going to overwhelm Ethernet, even in the AI space. No. But but we feel there's this very significant niche that we can grow, and that's exactly what you're talking about here. Yeah. Weirdly, I just read uh, Broadcom and Marvel talking at a particular event and they were both asked about InfiniBand, and both of them said it's a very profitable and it's a growing market today for them. So it's not impossible, unlikely. I'll give you, I'll grant you that. It's not impossible that we actually would see InfiniBand come out for enterprises because yeah, although- it makes sense in a in a small. And the thing about small scale AI is, does it really matter if it takes one day or five days to run an AI job? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. The only the only caveat in it, you know, it's a fairly significant one. Is is, you know, I, I, I'm sure you are. I'm I'm a big student of history, and I know that I know that Ethernet has left a lot of bodies in its wake. Right, yes. uh, many technologies mm-hmm. have have tried and failed to displace it in various use cases. We would have to posit that in this instance, you know, there are compelling differences between those okay. previous situations and I the take your point one. yeah and then highlight the fact that fiber channel still exists it does um, right yeah. after 15 years of storage over ethernet iSCSI, all of that stuff right enterprise still buys fiber channel hand over fist and does not run by and large storage over ethernet today so it's a little di- but as you would expect it's a little different i mean it, there are reasons for this that are have uh, you know and we don't want so, to get into it but so but, my but, counter argument is that ai is also a little different and there are yeah. reasons that that just might although it's clear that you know even even at broadcom uh, you know fiber channels strictly uh it's it's a it's a business that's gradually depleting it's a cash cow for them no which, no 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 it's growing it's growing at 30 percent per quarter it, it's it's pretty volatile. You know, you yeah. grow some quarters and then they'll drop 30%, right? Because mm-hmm. we, we used to talk with some of the vendors and they would say, yeah, it's, you know, it was, and then you have to look at the comps, right? Because if it's going down several quarters in a row, then it goes up. Um, it still hasn't made up for, for the aggregate 
hmm. shrinkage in the market. If you're looking, it depends the time horizon you're looking at it, right? Are you looking yeah. at it over full years? Or are you looking at it quarter on a, on quarter a quarter, quarter based? Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. Yeah, we would have predicted that fiber channel would be gone. Like remember, you know, when Brocade came around and started to put fiber channel over Ethernet, and that was going to change everything. That was the end of fiber channel. And yet today, fiber channel remains well known, well understood, dominant. And they're still selling it hand over fist. Cisco's still making fiber channel switches and making good money out of them and yeah, marketing uh, them. Right now, it's again, it's it's in the enterprise. Again, you don't see much of it in the cloud except for back office stuff, right? But that's because uh, it doesn't scale. Yeah, it doesn't scale. It doesn't scale, it doesn't and that's scale. that's it doesn't. That's well, sorry, enough. let me restate that to be precise. It doesn't scale to off-prem cloud capabilities, right? You know, to hundreds of thousands of nodes, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Yep. Because of the buffering mechanisms, you just can't signal that and you have all the problems associated and all the problems that Fiber Channel have still exist in Ethernet, by the way, because it's not a, it's not a protocol problem. It's a packet. It's a problem with packetization of data and InfiniBand solves that by doing streams or conceptually moving towards a stream. Right. And this is, this is one of the things that they are hoping to tackle in the ultra Ethernet consortium, the whole uh, ingestion control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And, and yeah, right. And we'll see how that goes because the IEEE is, you know, <laughs> you know, the whole IEEE and Ethernet Alliance and all the other pre, pre-meeting meeting people that get together on Ethernet not, hasn't always gone that well. In, well, in it's the, just the, it's just the interesting thing, right? About, about this, about this consortium. And of course it's the, the, the previous 25 gig is that they're, they're basically saying to, you know, all the standards bodies, right? They're saying you guys aren't moving fast enough for our purposes. Right. We have to. We have to go and do this ourselves. That's and, the point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I would put it to you that nobody cares except for Microsoft, Facebook, AWS, and Google are going to go and invent their own. They've already gone off invented. Oh yeah, their Google. Own. Google is definitely heading off in their own their own direction. Yeah. Yep. They yep. not. They won't have anything to do with it. They. They will. And AWS will, I would say, will also head off in its own direction. So that really leaves just a handful of customers for Ultra Ethernet. Now, they buy a phenomenal amount of switches, but that's no guarantee that it will be working for the enterprise. It would, unless vendors can do some sort of, you know, software control here and their ability to create software defined operations around data center networks hasn't been great. Like Cisco yeah, ACI has not, has not taken the market apart. No. Contrail has not revolutionized the industry. The software, most of the software divine solutions that were going to save us from the operational workload have basically turned out to be visibility tools. Yep. No, absolutely. And asset and, management and configuration and management. And it's interesting to what you said. I mean, there are certain vendors who obviously still look at the cloud market, right? And when I say cloud, I'm talking about, you know, the hyperscalers that, you know, you can super seven and add one if you want, but now three of the super seven, of course, are in China and that's markets going its its own way as we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, interesting thing there is that, uh, is that you're right. Google and AWS are increasingly, if, if, if you look at the bill of materials, right on, mm-hmm. on a switch, they're increasingly taking more of that them on themselves, right? And it's been a it's been a long road, which basically leaves the contract manufacturer with you know less and less of a margin defense over time. At least dealing with those two, right? Yeah. So it, it's it's you know <laughs> you have to wonder at some point are they going to have to start manufacturing their own <laughs> their own <Yeah>. stuff? <laughs> so so th- to me, it feels like you know we're going to see all this stuff about you know all this ultra Ethernet. 
and effectively they're forking Ethernet to, to put a bunch of features on there that will, you know, you can go out and sell them to people. But I'm not necessarily convinced that they'll be widely used. Um, but then again, we know that enterprises, you know, as we said at the top, enterprise customers are often bad buyers of technology. They'll buy something on a pitch, you know, it's red and it's got yeah. shiny wheels. Why yeah. didn't you buy it? You know. <laughs> it's brand uh, new. It's it's hot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's the latest. It's a, it, look at this cute little black dress. I've just totally got to have it, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't I think the a, Ethernet consortium is aimed at the typical enterprise anyway. It's highly specialized for folks like Microsoft and Arista who want to sell to Microsoft. Exactly. And, uh, and Arista was as for? many of these expensive modified, you know, ASICs as they can to those two customers. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because the, the supposition with Arista was that over time, the percentage of sales to hyperscalers would go down as a percentage of overall revenue, not because that market was shrinking for them, but because they would grow elsewhere including the enterprise, but still 46% or close to close to 50% of the revenue comes from almost two hyperscale customers, which is, Dangerous just shows position. how much, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And no matter yeah, how hard they I, try, they really haven't broken away from that. Yeah. Yeah. They really have, there's such a, probably, you know, a sort of sales and engineering gravity to those kind of numbers that they've not been able to penetrate into the enterprise like Juniper has as um, going up against Cisco and so on. Yeah, and those customers, of course, are, are extremely time intensive, as we all know, right? These are, and these are those are engineer mind milled customers, so it's a different kind of relationship as well, right? Where it's engineer to engineer within the companies, the buyer and seller, and it's an intensive relationship. Um, it, it, it can pay off, obviously, right? You can see it yeah. in their sales, but but mm -hmm. it's it's not a it's not a it's yeah. not a just push the box out the door relationship. And the flip yeah. side, the flip side here is that DPUs are waiting in the wings, and yep. all the features that they're talking about putting into the ASICs can all be obviated by using DPUs. Yeah. And we need, I believe, ultimately, yeah, we'll have got the Ultra Ethernet, and there's going to be some ASICs, and that'll be a short-term solution that some people will take up. But in the long term, I think you're going to see DPUs, and they're going to establish some sort of overlay network that's probably source routed because these networks aren't that large, right? You could just calculate all possible paths through a fabric and yep. then source route an, an overlay, right? And then say, I've got this data flow. I'm going to spray it across these potential paths using a source routed underlay. I'm just hypothesizing or I'm just making stuff up and saying a lot of people don't like the idea of source routing, but if we're going to go off and reinvent the ASIC for ultra ethernet, why not? Why not? go back to source routing. That yeah, was actually one of the original standards around. You can get, to your point, Greg, you can get a very flat network using those DPUs, right? I mean, it's yeah. Yeah, absolutely Well, and possible. it scales, right? Every yep. time you add another server, you add another DPU. You need a DPU anyway because you want to do the security, you want to do the firewall, the next, you want to do the, the visibility tooling, you want to do, uh, if you're going to do MPI or Rocky, you need a process engine to handle all of mm -hmm. that capability. You want to do offload from the CPU so that your CPU is just focused on moving data between the DPUs and the storage engine. And maybe even the DPU is doing that better because it's it's much more optimized for that type of capability. And the CPU is just running general purpose hypervisors and so on and so on. So I'm not entirely sure that ultra Ethernet matters in the long term. It might just be something that is a short-term trend that a couple of customers take up so that they can do AI right now and pick up on a trend that lasts for, you know, a short blaze of glory. And then at the end of the day, it goes back to being a DPU technology. 
especially in the enterprise where you can just, you know, the scale, the diameter or the, the radics, if you want to use the correct term, the radics yeah. of a, of a leaf spine network is only, you know, 40 or 50 switches at most. Yep. Yeah, I, and and as long as you get the policy right in in the way you're using the DPU, right in terms of the offload, I, I think that's the key thing there. But for as a lot of enterprises, as, that's try, a, there's yeah. a lot in that, and a lot in those two or three words. As long, yeah. I guess that's why I'm less sanguine on DPUs because I feel like it takes the policy management problems you have and multiplies them by however many servers you're putting a DPU. It can into. be disastrous if you get it wrong, Drew. So I understand why you're, uh, yeah. <laughs> you're, well, you don't want me to skate yeah. over that one. <laughs> so, so this comes down to a decision around, I believe this is a selling thing, a sales model. If I go to a customer and say, you can put this feature into your switch and this will solve your AI problems. But if you come along and you're a server maker and you can lift the average selling price of your server by $500 by including a DPU, do you know which one's going to win? It's going to be the DPU because it lifts the the average selling price of a server. And yeah, the vendors are going to go, I could fix the network and make a tiny bit of money, or I could fix the server and make a lot of money. And from the server vendor's perspective, they're already, a, obviously, they have a lot of brand equity in providing servers. They have great relationships with their mm -hmm. customers. Whereas, you know, networking has always been a hard slog for them, particularly in the enterprise, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, even yep. today... I mean, even today, HP and Dell sort of still kind of not really networking companies. They yep. sort of, you know, like even though Aruba is the the shine, one of the shining lights, like the last quarter, Aruba got a 30, 32% growth out of the networking business unit. Yep. And they're very excited about that. I mean, and they should be. And Dell's sort of been, you know, playing around with networking. It's done okay and it's getting good growth out of its networking unit over time, but it's still not, you know, prime territory still regarded as oh we have to not it's a prime growth sector for us um i you know so if you i think ultimately once the dpu market settles out the operating system for the dpu comes the applications for the dpus start to emerge then the dpus will eventually squash the features in the network because that's what we've seen consistently for the last 50 years yeah absolutely um and it was it was kind of funny uh on you know just to show how I'm not I'm not picking on him because obviously the server business is a big company, runs a big company, and the server business is a huge part of what they do, and networking is only a small part of what they do. But I remember at one press conference, Michael Dell got a question about what was at the time the Dell Network Operating System OS 10, and he said his his answer was, "Oh, is that is that is that a new release from Microsoft?" <laughs> 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 and then, then somebody said uh, somebody said to him, right, one of the Dell people said, no, I think that's a networking operating, one of our networking operating systems. And he said, he said, see, this just goes to show, he kind of turned it, he did a great job with it. This just mm -hmm. turns the show, uh, or it goes to show, Michael Dell said that, you know, CEOs don't don't know everything about their business. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I mean. Like, for, And that's, I think you're proving my point that the Dell networking exists as a necessary adjunct because customers are saying, we want to buy hyperconverged from you, but it's all got to be Dell. Yeah. And Dell has to have something in that space to, you know, to sell in that hype. And so they build enough of a data center switch to do that, but they still don't have routers. They still don't have firewalls. They still don't do SD-WAN, you know, yep. whatever. So whatever. Now I'm going to interrupt the conversation here because we've reached the point of the call where we do have to wrap. It's 60 minutes of solid content, but here's the thing. We actually have a whole bunch of other topics that we want to talk about. Campus, 
geopolitics and supply chain. We want to talk about the illities, visibility, observability, monitorability, all that stuff. And we also want to do my least favorite topic about 5G because Brad's been up to his hips in that as well. So we're going to run this into a second show. So what you need to do is be watching out in the future for the second show. Brad, thanks so much for your time today. We're going to go on and keep recording, but tell people where they can find more from you. Yes, yes, I do have. Uh, if you check me out on Twitter, you will see that uh, I've got all my uh, particulars there, including the fact that I'm now retired. You also find me on LinkedIn, and I have uh, I have a I have a new blog that uh, you can check out from the Twitter link. Um, it's uh, it's a little different from Twilight of the Valley of the Nerds, which was very kind of I would say practical and uh, news driven. This is a little higher level. It's a little more exploratory and I think a little more personal. That's called the Crepuscular Circus, and you can check it out um, yeah, at your leisure. Um, I, I will warn you, it's not exactly what I did before, but um, but I hope you find it interesting. I'm Drew Conry-Murray. I am blogging at packetpushers.net. Uh, I'm still on Twitter, but uh, you can find me these days mostly on Blue Sky, and I'm at drewcm.bsky.social on Blue Sky. Thanks so much for making time to listen to today's heavy networking episode, Future of Networking Vision Edition. We know mostly that you just listen to our podcast, but also check out our website at packerpushes.net for lots more information to keep you up with networking and cloud. You can also sign up for our newsletter at packetpushes.net slash newsletter and join our Slack community at packetpushes.net slash Slack. And if you haven't rage quit social media yet, you can find me on LinkedIn and also on Twitter as Ethereal Mind. Just do a search. You'll find me there. And if you'd like what we're doing, please tell your colleagues. It really help us, helps us stay in business. Uh, and as always, remember, last but never, ever least, remember that too much technology would never be enough. <laughs>